Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm one of your hosts, Arti Vade, coming to you from Duke University. So our loyal listeners will know that we bring you dialogues between the most fascinating critics and novelists around. Today we have Deidre Lynch and Tom Kamita on deck to talk about Tom's wonderfully weird The Nature Book. Part archive, part novel, all experimental, The Nature Book imagines a world without humans, but one that is indelibly marked by human description. It is composed almost entirely of found language, meaning that it contains no original writing, and yet is profoundly unique in the effect it produces. Tom has mastered the technique of collaging and sewing together quotations, and has rethought the novel through the internet video genre of the supercut. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Now, Deidre Lynch is the Ernest Birnbaum Professor of Literature at Harvard University, and a scholar whose sentences I've often wished I could supercut into my own work. She is the author of two influential books, Loving Literature, A Cultural History, and The Economy of Character, Novels, Market Culture, and The Business of Inner Meaning. She has also recently co-edited a collection titled The Unfinished Book, Oxford 21st Century Approaches to Literature. Deidre is a scholar of 18th century literature and book history, and like Tom, is deeply attuned to the history of the novel as form, matter, and medium. So Deidre, it's a pleasure to have you here. Very excited to be here, Arthur. Yes, this is a conversation I have been anticipating. So I will now pass the mic to you and fade into the background to cut in only from time to time. Great. Okay. Thank you. Well, cut in as often as as you would like. It would be only fitting if this were a kind of tapestry interweaving uh, a multiplicity of, of voices. So Tom, when I've been annoying my friends by talking on every possible occasion about this novel of yours uh, that they haven't read yet, uh, the way I've been describing the nature book is that I've been saying that you kind of turn the traditional novel inside out. So what was merely backdrop to the actions of human characters becomes the foreground. All of those descriptions that if one's reading Charlotte Bronte or Thomas Hardy, one maybe skims a little bit descriptions of the moors or the forest or the birds in the sky or the moon rising or the uh, wind howling, that material that one generally skims is uh, in the foreground here so that setting in some ways comes to take the place that character holds in the traditional novel. Um, But what astonished me about the reading experience of the nature book was that I figured out that that was what you were doing. And yet it became a page turner for me. Could you maybe describe the story that you tell over the four parts of the nature book? And maybe I should take a step back to talk about how I made it, because that really determined the story that was created. Um, Because basically, like I spent a year just skimming through lots of text files and gathered like 1500 pages of nature descriptions. Um, 
And that end of that year coincided with being at this residency in Omaha at the Bemis Center where I had like a lot of table space. And so I printed out, cut up those 1500 pages. And then on each of these tables, I had maybe like 12 tables. Um, there would be like a desert table or a winter table or a spring table, a ocean, so on and so forth. And then each of those tables, then I would, I noticed this like sub pattern of really like negative language and then very positive language. That was kind of the secondary thing. And so basically in the structure I just described, I basically just took those tables <laughs> and um, gathered up all like the positive language together and all the negative language together and then figured ways to kind of narratively blend them. And then even within those, you know, you notice like in the desert, there's a lot of horses. So, oh, there, there's gonna be a story of like horses here or, oh, there's a lot of like dust. Okay. Now there's a horse like trapped in a dust cloud. <laughs> um, but then there'd be even more micro things like in the autumn section, there's like a paragraph that's um, basically, I noticed a lot of, a lot of books describe trees as like army barracks or castles and clouds is like a marching army and so you put those together and there's like a mini story of like the war of the trees and the clouds you know there's that wider structure i just described and then there's these four sections the first section is the four seasons the second is oceans jungles islands the third is the outer space and then the fourth is basically like the united states like the western united states it's like prairies mountains deserts and in each of those I noticed, I didn't push this on it, but there's kind of a hero's journey um, of many characters, but like a tonal hero's journey where this is kind of going out, you know, journeying out. There's eventually like a very grim or difficult meditation on like life on earth. And that wasn't planned. A lot of this was like really what I just described, like was truly me trying to look at this material and, and and ask it to kind of show me the narratives, um, which was sometimes chance-based because it was physically done, you know, these juxtapositions, but was generally, you know, an accumulation of when you, once you have enough of something, a narrative can kind of emerge. But it was a little bit, I mean, this, this is just a, occurring to me as a metaphor, but there is a way in which your discovery of the novel amidst these thousands of paper slips and I have seen the photograph of you uh, surrounded by what is literally your paperwork, right? All of these things that you've cut right. out. And I think that's just astonishing. But the narrative is almost like the narrative sculptors tell about finding a sculpture inside a block of marble. You've sort of found this novel mm. through this sorting procedure. Does, does that kind of sync with, with your experience? Yeah, yeah. And actually, it also syncs with like, the inspiration, you know, I was the book was inspired by a work of art. So your sculpture reference. Um, yeah, my friend Kota Azawa, this artist in the Bay Area, um, had made this video city of nature where he had rotoscoped nature descriptions from like three, actually, sorry, I did 300 dollars. He rotoscoped nature shots from about like 40 movies, Hollywood movies. Um, and rotoscope them, collage them together into this pretty smooth cut where like a squirrel from one movie would jump and then a squirrel from another movie would land. So I wondered if there was something, if this video is pointing to something, that there, something pernicious about the process of framing and flattening the world into images. And then I wondered, yeah, like what, what would a similar procedure in literature reveal about 
language or imaginative limits. I, you know, I focused on English mainly. Sure, you've described the book as an archive, and I was thinking oh, about right. that description uh, this morning and thinking about the ways in which, like in 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 a lot of theory of the archive or theory of the database that's always contrasted with narrative. But I don't think of your novel as non-linear exactly. Mm -hmm. um, the seasons change uh, in the order that we're accustomed to seeing them change. Those horses that come to the fore in the fourth part are going on a journey. Uh, your, right. your birds are flying into the mountains. Your rivers are going to the sea. There is a way in which this does what we expect narrative to do, meaning we move somewhere as we turn the pages. It's just that the time isn't on a mm -hmm. human scale, right? So you also have... Uh, you also evoke at some moments like mountains kind of pushing up out, out of the ground. So there's, right. there's an incredible assortment of paces at mm -hmm. which you proceed, you proceed, the language proceeds, the novel proceeds. But then I would find myself encountering uh, sentences like the opening of the third section of the first book that would begin one morning just before dawn and I would catch myself and I would think oh now we're going to get protagonist because <laughs> that's how it would work in the kind of novels on uh from which I learned how to be a novel reader right one yeah. morning is the the cue for the story to begin and I wonder like am I a bad reader in wanting repeatedly to install uh a human mm into the mix in that way or in anthropomorphizing like the animals which i would find right. myself doing over and over again yeah well to make a readable book you know there there were three versions of this before i got to the one that you've read um where I really had to like one teach myself the pace. I, I feel like there there was a pace that I was trying to figure out, like slowing things down. <laughs> I mean, also was I was teaching myself how to write a novel at the time. I was a poet, so there was that too. When, when we're writing about nature, we're actually writing about people. Like there's so many metaphors, and I think about in the nature book that it's like polluted with human references. Even though I've removed direct references, they're metaphorically there, all the and, sim and similes and all that. But the reason I bring up those earlier versions is that. So in this earlier version, there was just like unidentifiable, not a page turner, you know? And then so this question becomes, how do you write a text that actually humans want to read? A nature text that humans want to read. And then, yeah, I studied like, you know, cliffhangers and genre novels. I read fiction for dummies, like, uh, which was funny because as, as I was reading it, I was also reading Withering Heights. And I'm like, Bronte's doing what they're describing in Fiction for Dummies. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah. So it was a process of once I figured out how to make a book that was readable, there was this balance where I was, I think that the way that you kept reading and others keep reading is that I <clears throat> made sure that there were uh, sentient beings who kept coming back. Like if there was a section, there are sections where I, you know, and I hope that people kind of, that it, stretches your attention span <laughs> you know because there are long sections where there are no sentient beings um but i did realize that you know 
the, yeah, we identify with them more easily. So I'm interested in this. Yeah. Through all these iterations, there was this identification. Can we identify with the text? And I think it's those characters, those animal characters that keep you going. I'm excited about this because this episode is going to appear on a season of novel dialogue dedicated to the weird. And the weird is a term we're thinking about really mm. capaciously. And one of the the phrases that have become associated with the weird in the way we're thinking about it is the longing for the non-human. And so mm. thinking about how your novel is stretching our attention spans in ways that are operating on geologic time, on seasonal time. And so in the form of the text, you're changing how the reader attends, pays attention. But then you two on the back end, thinking about how you constructed the book, seem like you were longing for some non-human kinds of production as well. And maybe you could push back on that. But I was thinking about your interest in constraint and your sense that you didn't want to impose yourself on the text. And so mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about your method again and whether there was a decision to use constraint in a way that talk about your, the way that you use constraint and why it's important to you to have constraints like that. I do think it helped trick me into like, for instance, not even like the question of who the narrator is people have asked and people don't like this, but like, I think I was so distracted that I hardly ever thought about it, <laughs> you know? Um, and I mean, the truth is it's a multi like it's a polyvocalic voice, <laughs> you know, that, that is literally what it is uh, guided by me. But I specifically put in that note because early on when I tried to send this to agents, somebody said that it was like I was speak. somebody had not read very closely or maybe read the afterword, but like it's, like, it's Tom speaking through nature, but like, I don't know, some scholar could come and probably tell me that, yes, you absolutely did that, but I, the constraints just at least were a way to keep me in check. And literally, you know, there were moments where I was editing and thinking, I would love to say this one thing right here, <laughs> but I wouldn't, I wouldn't just, I, I, there were no words of my own. Um, so I, I couldn't do that. So I'd either have to find something um, that was similar or, but what, but also those moments, there was never like, I want to say like, you know, some statement. It was more just like, I need to get from A to B. And I, I think I have an idea of how I can do that. I can now search through my corpus. Even though it's not Tom speaking through nature, it felt like it was our moment, more mourning nature. And when mm. I think of it as being linear, I do feel like there, we are headed toward apocalypse, maybe over and over and over again. Um, uh, and that that was the astonishing thing about it was was realizing that you have written a you have written you have stitched together a novel that speaks very much to this moment and to kind of our 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 way of like living with catastrophes one after another then there's only one reference to climate change in the book because the the source text cut out about 2015 and you know i believe it was maybe that time when amitav ghosh published the great derangement about how we're not talking about climate change enough in our writing and so literally there's one reference as we're entering outer space back onto the prairie um we we there's one reference to the ice caps melting but i think that what happened was by not pushing some climate agenda on it, but just creating this accumulation of texts through these constraints, 
I created extreme weather events. There were moments when I was writing the book where I thought, you know, probably every author thinks, you know, what would an author, what, what if, what will future authors think about your work? This one in particular, sometimes I thought that they'd be really angry at it because mm-hmm. it truly is a time capsule of what, what is lost. What it's even already lost now. It's already dated. <laughs> One of the things that also occurred to me as I was thinking kind of narrative versus archive was I also thought about how an archive is also like Noah's Ark. Like there is sort of a preservative uh, function Mm. to this book. This was what it was like. And so future generations are going to kind of what think about ice caps by by kind of uh, seeing them pictorialized. And that's both, I think, kind of uh, uh, a remedy and, of course, part of the problem, because as you said, right, about your your friend's film, there is a way in which we just turn nature into pictures and make it right. something outside of us rather than something in which we're involved and for which we bear some responsibility. I found, so I will go back to the identification question. So I did, I identified with the birds, I identified with the little beaver mother, kind of making making her down at, at, at the beginning. But in a weird way, I think, and this was part of the eeriness that for me makes the book so beautiful. I was also into identifying with these strange, unseen, disembodied observers who keep emerging in the language precisely because you determined that you would allow kind of some traces of the human. So Mm. kind of sentences like no one had ever seen a moon so large and so strangely colored. And I'm like, who's seeing here? (laughs) Who's this no one? And in a strange way, the structure of identification is not just with those animals moving along, but it's also with these disembodied observers who keep haunting the text like ghosts. It occurs to me just now, I feel like I was mm-hmm. being made to feel as if I was seeing the world through a ghost's eyes at certain Mm -hmm. points. I don't know if that's too fanciful, um, but that was part of what I loved about it was that you make identification weird and eerie and interesting. And time, because the question is like, when when is the set? Is it before humans? Is it after? I mean, I guess, and and really in a way, in some ways I feel like a a distant reader of this text also, you know, because... I set up so many parameters that I just felt like a worker just doing my job <laughs> making this. Your description of yourself as, as as a worker brings me to a question that I've been dying to ask you, which is, I know that one of your models, or uh, at least a, another example comes from Moby Dick, right, which begins with the 80 epigraphs collected by uh, a poor devil of a sub-sub-librarian, right? Those epigraphs that are collecting everything that has been said or thought or fancied or sung about whales. And I wanted to ask you about kind of Moby Dick's language appears 
fairly often in, mm-hmm. in, I mean, we've all, I think it is a bit of a Rorschach. So Arthur was saying she kind of picked up on the William Gibson and I found the Joyce and weirdly the Bram Stoker and the Melville of, of course. But I wanted to ask you about kind of what the example of Moby Dick meant for you as you were writing this novel. Yeah, I mean, it be it became very important. You know, I I actually hadn't read Moby Dick until midway through writing it, um, and and it was the process of writing the book that got me to read it. Um, I was skimming through Moby Dick looking for nature language, and became obsessed with it formally. You know, like and it was talk about like a distant reading, just like skimming, and I just I just fell in love with it, and I and then I then read it and was blown away by it uh, for many reasons, not just the extracts, but I should say, yeah, I mean, I, throughout this project, I, um, I had wondered, you know, I, there's always precedent in some way. And I, and so I, when I found those extracts at the beginning of Moby Dick, it like big light went on. I think there's always been this sense that literature is this, uh, sort of modular set of parts that you can rearrange and 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 rearrange and create something new as you did not through sort of wholesale composition but through curation and recuration and rearranging the reason i really want to talk to you about melville yeah. <laughs> so melville has footnotes and you have footnotes and I mean, as kind of uh, a geek about early novels, <laughs> um, I read lots of novels with footnotes. Um, I just love your footnotes, partly because I, for me, they really raise the question, they're at the edge of your text of who is speaking here. You said that kind of that was a question that you had been wondering about yourself, right? Wait, what is the narrative voice? And it's a polyphony. But the footnotes, insofar as they're distinguished from the main text, seem to introduce like a new wrinkle into that polyphony because they are exiled to the edges. What's going on in those footnotes? I love Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, at first they were there because some of the books I looked at had present tense language and the book was in the past tense. So I thought I'll put all the present tense language as footnotes. So it's like, it's just a simple formal move, but then they grew and, and you know, they're not just that because there are, there's some in the past tense now. Um, but yeah, I think that they, you know, you've brought up the word linear text a lot. And um, I really, sometimes I was like thinking, I've written like one of the most linear texts imaginable, literally like one thing connects to another, you know, um, there's, there are hardly any jump cuts from one subject matter to another. Uh, but the footnotes seemed like a way to bifurcate the narrative and give another perspective. You know, there's a point in the desert section when we look at a Mesa and then the footnote is what is going on from above the Mesa. And I really wanted to get up there and get that perspective. But as you noted also earlier, like I'm trying to keep this narrative moving. It's 
I was feeling as though I was getting everything that this was kind of this novel that was doing kind of what we're always told in in literary theory. The epic does is giving us totality. This this is it. This is the whole shebang. This is the whole of of history, even the whole of space and the whole of history. And there's something about the way you assembled your data set. You're very particular about telling us um, the three, I think you used 300 novels. You consulted some top 10 lists. You consulted awards lists. You consult, I mean, you had a very responsible, comprehensive approach approach to assembling your database. Mm. And I think most of it is literary fiction. Uh, And of course, the story that arises out of it is set by those parameters. So are there any other sources that you would want to make into a database besides literary fiction? Hmm. Like, like as a different project? Yeah. Are, yeah. There, are you eyeing anything as a future database? So I have one more book to edit, but I have made a bunch of other mm-hmm. You did uh, one about works. novel, airport like, novels, right? <laughs> or novels yeah, that sell well yeah. in airports. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like blockbuster fiction, best-selling fiction. Um, then there was a short story made out of first lines from New Yorker uh, short stories uh, that was published in Bomb in 2018. And then I did a uh, a short story of last lines from sci-fi novels. So I did do like a genre mm-hmm. one and that was in Wired in 2020. Um, and then, yeah, the third, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I guess the third book because the airport in Airport novella is like a very short book um, that looks at four gestures that I found to be ubiquitous in these found in um, best-selling novels: nodding, shrugging, odd looks, and gasping. <laughs> so it's like four chapters. Each chapter is a basically like a dance, like a lot of nodding, a lot of shrugging, a lot of odd mm-hmm. looks, and a lot of gasping. Um, but the book I'm still I'm I'm editing right now. A coffee house is also going to put out as a novella. Each chapter is a different pattern, and so sometimes there is genre pattern. So like, um, like one chapter which has been published in the Kenyan Review like collects. I guess this isn't genre. This is still literary fiction, but it's like particularly from before, like the modern era. If we call modern like like capital M modern, <laughs> uh, like nineteen before like nineteen ten or something, uh, and. Just gathering that pattern, you know, which we've all seen, where uh, uh, where authors will excise part of a word uh, to make it anonymous. Like it'll be like, I went past the H dash bridge, right. or uh, instead of the word "damn it," it's D dash 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 N it. And so I just collected all, a lot of these, and it's kind of like a Mad Lib um, mm-hmm. mystery story about searching for a snuff box, which was. <laughs> Which is actually the it's like it's the first part I wrote from this book. It's a story within a story, and then kind of built the novel around it. Oh my god! Um, so so kind of as as a recovering eighteenth centuryist, I have to say, you know this that there is this kind of trend in the middle of the eighteenth century. Kind of you know the novel rises. Okay, we have Robinson Crusoe, we have Pamela, blah blah blah. Suddenly we have books that retrospectively literary historians have come to call it narratives because their protagonists and narrators are 
objects, not, or sometimes animals, but often manufactured objects. And I swear oh. Adventures of a Snuffbox is 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 kind of an actual 18 i'm going to send you a list i would love please. i will send you a list yes. of it narratives and um, there's definitely adventures of a corkscrew adventures of a hackney coach and they're not mm. you it's it's again it, they sort of thwart identification because actually it turns out it's not that easy to identify mm. with the life of a corkscrew but the thing about a corkscrew is it gets lost and other people pick it up so it it they're very these inanimate object narrators are very well placed to narrate the whole of the social world in some ways your novel is entirely made from recycled materials i have no idea about it's actual paper stock, whether Coffee House Press has any sort of environmentalist commitments or, or not. But, you know, you show us that language is recyclable. And mm -hmm. I guess, you know, I'm really interested in, in kind of how you kind of connect sort of the formal imperative of only using found language to your environmentalist commitments, you you said that you didn't want to press those, and yet they emerged nonetheless. Can you say more about that? I was seriously questioning like the value of literature that's tackling climate change, as you know, it's twenty twenty three, and we've known this is like widely known as a problem for thirty years. And there was a part that was like, we don't need more books. We just need legislation, <laughs> you know. Um, but actually through going on tour and having conversations and actually a conversation specifically with Elvia Wilk, who when you talked about the weird, she wrote a book, um, Death of Death by Landscape, um, and which is really the first actually reading that first essay in that book, I realized that she had written like the theory for my novel <laughs> uh, separately. Um, Cause it's just about like the blending of basically it's talking about putting the background to the fore and, and challenging the foreground of, of the novel. But in talking with her at this event at Columbia, I feel a little limited, like, we don't need more books. We, you know, we need legislation because to, for people to come on board for all these changes that need to happen, you know, we, they need, we all need to be conditioned to new ways of thinking and experiencing the world. I feel like kind of it teaches new habits of attention that I mm -hmm. think in, in kind of, you know, a philosopher or a sociologist or kind of a politician could do that over and over again but you make us experience that and I think that that's really 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 productive and helpful I think it also for me I mean I I, I kind of I kept thinking that the, of kind of notions of the commons commonplacers are think of themselves as gleaners they're saying we sh literature is something we all share at exactly the moment that kind of notions of intellectual property and copyright are, are really getting fortified. 
people are copying out stuff into their own books. And even if they're not presenting themselves as authors, they're presenting themselves as people who make books too. And I think you, we kind of get an idea of literature, of, of, of a literary commons uh, mm -hmm. from this book, as well as sort of a notion of the wilderness as a kind of commons that we sh ought to be sharing more responsibly. I guess it takes to the extreme something that I just think is inherent to writing, which is that, you know, we're, we're constantly drawing from other things, you know, you know, interestingly, three months after the book came out, the book seems more illegal now in the, in the United States because of the Supreme court decision about the Andy Warhol mm -hmm. uh, foundation. I actually, oh yeah. Yeah. Like I, 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 I actually, I looking at the details of it, I I feel like safe-ish. You know, to be honest, you know, I I don't say this to diminish the conversation, but I I it's just so it just seems so obvious to me that we're all part of some commons and drawing from each other that um I just found it to be an annoying hurdle the whole time to have to keep convincing people that, you know, this is okay. And at the same time, it was helpful to one one person I gave a talk at Naropa and I was like, you know, basically like, how, how can you own a word? And one person did say something I thought was helpful that, you know, actually by following fair use and making the book a making sure the book was a criticism, it wasn't just taking other people's words and doing whatever with it, that it kind of helped hone what I was doing. I mean, it's still a criminal text in a bunch of like fair use is like you're breaking copyright and there's an exception. Anybody can sue me at any time. Any of these authors can or their estates, minus the people who are in the public domain. Um, so that I, I I have lived in fear for years. I kept thinking that they were going to pull the book at some point after a cease and desist. Yeah, there I mean, copyright law enshrines such a narrow form of originality and creativity. One that, like you said, outlaws the kinds of creativity that you are bringing to this book. And even though it's not about ecology or the environment. It does feel like it's of the same kind of culture that believes in the new as opposed to the recycled, right? So there's this mm. way in which intellectual property has always been invested in making a tragedy of the commons, because if it were common and it worked, you couldn't profit from it. You couldn't privatize it. So there's a really interesting mm -hmm. analogy there between literary commons and the physical natural commons yeah i was reading all morning for the yeah. book I'm, I'm i'm working on on scraps about notions of degrowth and kind of the 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 kind of evoking of what is already there of the preciousness of what we already have is i think part of the gift of the nature book uh, that we didn't need new language. It was all there, but look at how I'm helping you attend to it in new ways. Okay, so <laughs> this is this is the the signature question for this season of novel dialogue. What has been your weirdest source of inspiration for your writing? Yeah, can I give two answers? Yeah, yeah, that would be weird, right? <laughs> yeah, break uh, the rules. <laughs> <laughs> the so there's one. Yeah. There's one that I actually thought I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to say this because I feel like I'll probably say it earlier when we're talking about character, but I, it didn't come up. Um, and it, it's partially a inspiration, but it's also just 
it gave me vocabulary or precedent to understand maybe what I was doing. But as I was working on the nature book, my partner and this other couple, we would watch The Bachelor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, this ridiculous reality TV show. And particularly we watched The Bachelor in Paradise. But actually overall, it was The Bachelor that taught me the importance of cliffhangers because <laughs> they just kept moving the goal. Every episode, they would move the goalpost and it was all about the cliffhangers. Even, even like the commercial breaks, like everything was designed to keep you going. And then the other weird thing is actually my father. Because I, when I, you, you know, full disclosure, you asked me this question earlier to think about it. And I, I got the question while I was at my parents' house last night. And I realized immediately, I was like, my dad, because my father is a landscape architect, but he is also a collector of the strangest collections. For instance, he's obsessed with anything that comes in primary colors. So he would like get like a plate set from Ikea, red, yellow, blue. He stole balls from McDonald's play bins, like yeah, red, <laughs> yellow, blue. He would get like the the like Intel guys from the, the commercial back in the day, he got them in red, yellow, blue. And so getting gifts for him is very easy. I just get him like something that comes in red, yellow, blue. But he also has a collection of butterfly earrings and a collection of, uh, he has, his uh, company has this like mini warehouse where they put documents and the bathroom is covered in calendars all open to the same month. I think growing up with that, when I discovered these kind of supercut techniques, collage techniques, I just think I got it immediately. And it was, it was like what it, it was a language I already understood. And so I think that that's yeah i think that it was so can i, I hit definitely... you up for a photo of one of those things because i have a feeling bachelor is going to be under copyright and we usually yeah. use a picture <laughs> for yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. great yes <laughs> fantastic yeah. Awesome. okay so i will take us out um as we approach the end of another novel dialogue we'd like to thank the society for novel studies for its sponsorship public books for its partnership and duke university for its continued support Hannah Jorgensen is our production intern, Connor Hibbard is our sound engineer, and Rebecca Otto is our social media maven. Check out past and upcoming episodes with Ocean Vuong, Aminata Forna, and Jeff Vandermeer. So from all of us here in Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.